So if you're listening to this episode when it's released, we are now in May of 2023, which is also AAPI or Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. There are a lot of names for this month, though, which is great, as there are also a lot of countries and ethnicities represented by the simple word Asian. But one group of people that is often left out of this overarching Asian umbrella are the biracial Asians. And given our own identities in this space, this is something that we experience regularly. Yes, totally we do. So to kick off AAPI Heritage Month from this perspective, not often discussed, we're focusing today on our personal stories of being biracial Asian women, and what identity, belonging, and inclusion means when we look at being Asian in this country through that particular lens. And you know us, it's us. So we're going to be throwing in some history, laws, and psychology along the way. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that models and normalizes conversations about race and racism in order to help more white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial, Japanese, and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. So I love the emphasis there. That <laughs> that was amazing. Do, do, do. <laughs> in keeping with today's theme. So To kick things off today, let's take it back. And I mean, way back. So first question goes to you, Sarah. What was it like for you to grow up biracial in this country? I love this question. And I will like bracket it by saying it's the only way I know how to grow up in this country, because obviously we can't see what it's like to grow up in any other way. But I would say to put it in context, I grew up basically in the 80s in the suburbs of New York. This was like the era of the Japanese economy booming and all the news sources were talking about how the Japanese people are taking over Rockefeller Center and like buying all the real estate. And, you know, a lot of Japanese folks actually lived in the greater New York area. Uh, Canon, you know, the big like camera and technology company had an office in the New York area. They had a lot of Japanese employees living in Long Island area, which is where I grew up. And so because of that, there was actually a Japanese Saturday school that I had to go to. Now I'm grateful. But at the time, if we're putting me in like little six-year-old Sarah's brain all the way up to like 16-year-old Sarah's brain, I had to get on a bus every Saturday morning and go to Japanese Saturday school. Sometimes it was in like Great Neck. Sometimes it was in Queens and in Flushing. And like every Saturday, I spent my time with a whole bunch of people learning social studies, science, math, and Japanese language all day Saturday. And on top of that, there was enough of a population out there that I took Japanese tea ceremony lessons. We had opportunity to learn shuji. I'm doing this. What do you say in English? (laughs) I was like... Uh, Calligraphy, yes. Like calligraphy, right? Yes. So when I get in my Japanese mode, folks, I actually (laughs) sometimes lose my English because I am fluent in Japanese. So are you. I spent actually a lot of my summers in Japan because my mom made a promise when she left Japan, uh, when she married my dad and moved to the US that she would come back to Japan regularly and make sure her kids grew up spending time with her parents and her family in Japan. So I spent tons of time there. But because of all this, I didn't get to do like the American girl air quote thing of like Girl Scouts and soccer because those all took place during the times I had all those other lessons. That said, I did do like what I think is sort of white American kid stuff. Like I had scrunchies. Do you remember in the in the 80s, like the scrunchies you wore on your scrunchies wrists that match yeah. the ones? I know my kids have them now. And I'm like, dude, we were the OG. Kids, I used Noxema on my face, right? Remember the Noxema girl? I knew every word to We Didn't Start to Fire that our sixth grade teacher. So I had this 
very firmly Japanese life layered on top of what you do as a typical American kid going to school, riding your bike, playing outside, all this sort of stuff. And I definitely had all the food, the language, and I would say the overprotectiveness of girls. Also being the eldest Japanese like daughter, right? As, or biracial daughter. How that translated to my life, I would say I felt like I never fully fit in in any of those spaces. So I kind of, for better or for worse, you might say worse by the time you met me, dressed in my own unique style when I was growing up. I like how you phrase that. We can get into specifics later if you must, but I definitely had a unique style going on and I got along pretty much with everybody, right? I kind of knew that everybody had a story because of how I grew up, that there were different cultures, that there was times where I wouldn't agree with what my mom said or about our rules. And my dad would be like, stop, these are our family norms. This is what the Japanese culture that your mom grew up in and continues to this day is dictating is our norm. So it doesn't matter that we're different than the other American families. So I don't know if that paints a picture, but that was sort of my life growing up in my mom's Japanese house, basically. What about you, Misasha? What was it, you know, and also growing up on the West Coast, you were totally on the opposite coast than me. Yeah. And I, you know, some of growing up was very similar, right? By the overprotectiveness. It was very Japanese culturally in our house. I did get spared Japanese Saturday school because I was doing ballet on Saturdays. And that was my salvation from that, I will say. And that experience, although I did get to spend a bunch of summers in Japan and kind of by virtue of having to speak Japanese to like, I don't know, eat, right? It <laughs> really made my Japanese a lot better. I will say that in on the West Coast, and I grew up in Los Angeles, it was kind of a split culture, right? Being Japanese there because like, Sarah, you and I were both dual citizens, right? And and there was a strong Japanese American culture on the West Coast as well because of the incarceration, right? And because you had multiple generations of people who sometimes have been told not to speak Japanese and to forget that Japanese culture as a way of survival, right? And so my dad was always very clear, like, we are Japanese and American, but we're not Japanese American in the same way, right? Because that was a, that was a big like experiential divide, if that makes sense. That's so interesting because I grew up with a like Japanese immigrant culture. Like you said, you were Japanese and American and like freshly Japanese, but not multi-generations away from having your ancestors have already immigrated. So that is a totally different culture that you're talking about. Yeah. So I will say, even though I did not go to Saturday school on Saturdays, I spent most Saturdays with my dad after ballet in Little Tokyo which if you know Los Angeles, Little Tokyo is right next to downtown. And this is before downtown was, you know, anyway, gentrified. So it was sort of indicative of where the culture was, right, as well, and how Japanese were treated after they returned home from being incarcerated, right, on their own soil. But it was always something, I will say, I love that you noted that you knew every word to We Didn't Start the Fire, because we have very different musical tastes. Well, I do know every word to start the fire. I will say that growing up biracial in Los Angeles meant that I knew fundamentally I was never 100% white. And it took me a long time to realize that not everyone had two countries, right, that they called home, like that they, you know, that not everyone went back to some other country in the summer. Like, I think I remember being in third or fourth grade and finally being like, oh, wait, there are some people that are here. And so that was really eye opening for me, because, you know, as a child, you kind of assume a lot of people are like you. I mean, like, oh, no one, no one's like me. That's interesting. 
But I will say that because I knew I wasn't white, a lot of the cultural things I did was either very Asian. I listened to a lot of hip hop and rap music, you know, as part of it. I still remember the first time after we met in college and I came out to California to visit you and you were actually driving your own car and you totally had like rap and hip hop. And I'm like, what is this music? I don't even know this music. (laughs) (laughs) What is this newfangled music that we have out here? I truly had never, ever heard it. So yes, different experiences on that. Yes, a little bit. That was also dance wise, right? Like I was doing a lot of hip hop dance at the time too. But I I think that goes back to, you know, something that I always fundamentally understood about myself. Like I've I've always 100% known that I was Japanese, right? And that I was biracial um, and that I was not fitting in white circles, right? In ways that people who might look at me thought that I was fitting in. Like I was, if anything, I was doing like I had the Suzuki like racing thing for my car. Like anyway, like so this paints a little picture of who I was. And if you grew up in Los Angeles or in the San Gabriel Valley, I think you know. But, you know, like I said, I've always 100% known, right, that I was Japanese. And the way I've thought about it is it's just everyone else who has not accepted it, acknowledged it or included me because of it. Right. And so I I see that as a you problem, right. To put that in mom speak as opposed to a me problem. I love that. To add to that, my nephew, my Canadian nephew actually calls it an issue, not an ish me. (laughs) And I was like, I never heard that one before. So um, yeah, but you know, I think that biracial individuals, you know, as we talk about a lot on this show and and in our speaking engagements, like really view race and identity in so many different ways, right? And so that is my truth. But Sarah, I know you've had quite a different experience than I did, right? In the second half of your life after you left your parents' home, you know, and in the suburbs of New York. So can you share some about that? And I also want you to talk about what you wrote in our book too, because I real it's so powerful when you talk about it. Okay. Thank you for asking. It is a question we get asked when we do our speaking gigs. So I will share here too. The second half of my life that you refer to that I sort of bifurcate my life into would be when I met my now white Canadian husband and my white American dad had passed away. Like all of those things happened in like the same few month span. And shortly after that, we left where we were living in Brooklyn and moved to Arizona which in case you're not clear, is a fairly white state, or I should say non-Asian state, right? There's definitely more Hispanic representation down there. But when I was there, I don't know the psychoanalysis of it all, but I definitely was surrounded by a lot of white people. And like the more I experience it and think back on it, the more I feel like sometimes what we see is how we reflect back. Like we've interviewed enough people who have immigrated as a person of color or have moved to a place where they have grown up as the only like they're and otherwise they're surrounded by white people and they look at themselves and they go, they think of themselves as white because they didn't have anybody else to reflect their own experiences or looks or ethnicities back to them. You know, we don't walk around with mirrors on our faces. And so we see what's around us. And I felt like I really spent this second half of my life living with a white man and living with a lot of white people around me, exploring my dad's side almost this white culture. But I think if you fast forward almost like six or seven or eight years, once we had kids who were able to speak, here's one story I'll share about one of the reasons we left Arizona was that they were in the car and their car seats in the back and we're driving home and and there's an Asian lady crossing the street and the kids go, hey, mommy, look, it's Obachan. 
like their word for grandma, like my mom. They thought that that was my mom because it was an Asian lady and they saw so few Asian people that they defaulted to the stereotypes and just said, oh, that's what grandma looks like. And at that point I was like, okay, like it is time you know, they have brown hair. They don't fit the stereotype of an Arizona kid either. And so knowing that we had had a great time living there when they were little, it was time to really find a place that was more suited to who we are as a family. And here we ended up in Colorado. I will say we moved into our home and I grabbed my husband once we met our neighbors and I was like, there are three Asian women on our block. There's so much more diversity here than there was back home. Like I truly felt this like joy and relief at seeing more people who like felt like home to me, if you will. But back to your book question, you know, I think having really tried to explore this whiteness and living in areas where I, I really only had white friends for so, so long, the thing that brought me back to myself, I think in my roots was the, and that was where I say in the book, you know, I considered myself white for so long. When we wrote that book, I was still very much in that space of like, I have a lot of white friends around me. I don't know why I still don't feel like I belong, but like, this was my experience. And the thing that, that happened after we already released the book was the Asian spa shootings and in Atlanta. And I remember a call from a white man who I've done some work with saying, look, I've had to call many black friends in the past after all these killings to check on how they're doing. But I never thought I'd have to call you as an Asian woman. And at that point I was like, oh my gosh, thank goodness. Somebody here in the white community sees me as Asian. They see that I am not white. I am both Japanese and white. And it like at that point, like my languaging shifted. I went from being like half Japanese, half white to being biracial. I'm both Japanese and white. And it really, having someone see me and acknowledging that part of me really made me feel like, ah, I'm back. I can reclaim this. And it really sort of started me on this whole new path of understanding about why I never really fully felt comfortable, right? It's not just about what people look like, but for me, I think I've learned that it's about being around people who understand that there's more than one way to live a life that the world is big and who get what it means to be marginalized and who have that strength to forge their own path. Those are the people that I feel the most comfortable with. And that really came to a head after having explored sort of living as an Asian person when my youth, living as a white person, and then kind of remembering my true self uh, after that point. So anyway, I'm curious though, because I don't think I consciously did any of that exploration. It's in looking back, I can make sense of the story, but how did you always know? Like, how did you ground yourself? And this is who I am and not let people shake that. Yeah, I, um, first of all, I really appreciate you sharing that story, because I, I think it's so important, because there are probably a lot of people out there who are feeling the same way, right? Or who, especially being biracial, it's a constant sort of push and pull as to like, who am I? Which part of my family am I seeing in me right now, or my community or whatever? And so I think for me, it, it's always been, I'm the type of person where someone's like, if they say like, you can't do that, I'm going to be like, no, I can do that. And I'm going to do it way better than you ever thought. Yes, you are. So I think that that is also, it's also fundamentally true. Like now that, and like you, this is not a conscious thing, I think, but I think that when I was younger and people used to really challenge, like, well, just how Asian are you? Right. I started to be like, I know how Asian I am, you know? And so I don't really care how Asian you think I am. Because I'm, you know, as Asian as I have always known I am, right? I'm as Japanese, if we're being specific, you know, I know who my family is. I know 
what I have culturally taken. And so I think it's been that challenge, right? It's been that pushback. It's probably why I became a lawyer, right? If I'm really like going deep into this psychoanalysis, but it was because of that. I think it was the everyone's desire to be like, you've got to be in one box, right? You can't be in both boxes. And I was like, well, that's ridiculous. So I'm going to build my own box. We will get to the yeah. literal part of that in a little bit in this conversation. Yeah. So I think that's why, right? Like I think that to not be Japanese would deny a huge part of who I am. And so that was just not an option, I think, within me, right? And yeah, I definitely got pushed back to this day, right? I still get people being like, what? Like, yeah, I'm still Japanese. So, you know, about that and about getting pushed back and about people sort of, you know, trying to determine just how Asian you are. We've talked about this on other episodes that we've done, And I think, you know, it's important, like, let's not forget that we're both in our mid 40s now. And it's not lost on me on certain levels that the same people who were often the biggest gatekeepers for Asian spaces. And by that, I mean, the people who judged us the hardest about being Asian, like you're not 100% Asian, you're not welcome in this space. And not even verbally saying that, right? But just the vibe, you can tell Mm -hmm. when you're not being included. Yeah. And so those people, right, are now the same people who are asking us for advice in how to raise their biracial Asian kids, which I love. I like love that more than anything. Well, not more than anything, but I love it because it's like a fairly overlapping Venn diagram of sorts, right? Like almost a perfect circle. And so I'm curious, have you experienced that? Hi, it's Sarah. Are you looking for another podcast that explores deeply personal conversations about race, identity, and culture? Then I highly recommend listening to one of our favorite podcasts, 10,000 Things, produced by our friends at KUOW, Seattle's NPR station. If you're a fan of This American Life, then consider 10,000 Things the equivalent of This Asian American Life, as it's a sound-rich celebration of Asian America. Each episode, host and award-winning poet Shin Yi Pai sits down with Asian Americans to explore objects that hold value in their lives and tell something about their story. The new season just launched, and its first episode is a can't-miss conversation with poet and educator Ebo Barton, who explores the power of names and their identity as a Black, Filipino, transgender, and non-binary individual. And later in the season, they'll have acclaimed activist Alice Wong on amplifying the voices of disabled people and dismantling systemic ableism. Needless to say, this season features an amazing combination of guests and stories, ranging from an artist with their paper resume to a conservationist with their steelhead trout. So go ahead. Follow 10,000 Things on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcast app. Tell them we sent you. Yes. Like, if you could see me, I like wanted to do, you know, when kids nowadays, they do like the snaps, like in the meetings. I agree with you. I totally wanted to do give you the snaps there. Yes, totally. It is so... I don't even know the word. I'll misuse the word ironic and just say that now. But like when I was growing up, I had in my Japanese home, you know, this folks, like my group of friends of Asian descent. It was this, we call ourselves either the misfits or this eclectic Asians, right? It was Chinese, Korean and Japanese friends. And interestingly, when I thought about it, it was like, oh, that was my East Asian crew because there are what 42, 48 Asian nations. And those three are the East Asians. But outside of that group, being the adult, I have... I would say I felt welcome-ish in Japanese communities because I speak the language, I know the food, I know the customs, I know to, to, how to behave, but less so in mixed Asian communities. I don't know if you found that the same way. 
But like, there's something that keeps me on the outside. Like you just said, like you have to prove how Asian you are. Yeah. I have to say that, yes, I am bilingual. Yes. I spent a lot of time living in that culture. And then maybe I'll get a little bit of like, okay, maybe you're in. And I think it might be like most forms of racism that hurt the most, right? It's not this explicit, like you are not Asian enough. Nobody communicates that, but it is that feeling like you were saying, the vibe, the small things, whether it's because I also don't fit the mold of the stereotypical Asian woman, whatever that stereotype means to you, right? And I want to say that as someone who's 5'7", right, I definitely spent a large portion of my childhood, once I got to be 5'7", explaining that, yes, I'm this tall and I'm still Asian, which I, because for a while I felt like I needed to be about four inches shorter to fit, because this was like putting me way out of the box for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. So I get it. The other part is like, you know, my mom, if you knew my very non-stereotypical yet so also immigrant Japanese mom, you'll see why I am who I am. Like her hair is lighter blonde, like colored than mine is like that. She is Love it. her own person. And so that being said, having already gotten that vibe, even in my adult years living everywhere else, right? Outside in America, I would say I didn't feel this way when I met foreigners in Asia. I was totally welcomed. That was like, you're in the group because we're all living this multicultural life out there. But here in the States, for sure, I was definitely not Asian enough was the vibe. But almost all of them will turn to me and ask, like, how did I feel about growing up? What made me feel connected to my roots? How can they instill pride in their biracial kids? Because I think the reason and something I really think is important for people to put in context is I like calling us the OGs. Like we were totally the original biracial folks because of the law, like the loving decision. And I will ask you, my legal friend, to take us through that case in a moment about why it's so important. But there was like, people were not allowed to get married if you weren't in the same race in our country until like less than 10 years before our parents got married. So there were no recognized biracial children, like more than five to 10 years older than we were. And so in terms of putting that in a reality check too, and I said, I would come back to that, like whether you can check a box, you and I, like as a family, you have to fill in census data, right? Every 10 years. And obviously in every standardized test when you were growing up, we all had to fill in what race do you belong. Until the 2000 census, we only had the option to check one race. So like for multiple censuses, we had to do, decide, are we white or are we Asian? Or are like the decision to use the instruction, mark one or more races, and I air quote that, was reached only by the Office of Management and Budget in 1997 after they noticed evidence of increasing numbers of children from interracial unions and the need to measure the increased diversity in the United States. Again, what we talked about, it's all because of the loving decision. And they finally recognized that more people like us were showing up. And so they needed to be able to count them. You know, before that decision, most of the efforts to collect data on race, including those by the census bureaus, really just asked people to report one race. And I also want to point out, and I dug this up to share with everyone, if you fast forward to a few decades from that decision, deep in the bowels of our most recent census in the 2020, there's a milestone. For the first time in modern American history, most white people live in mixed race neighborhoods. I'm curious if you're listening to this, if you noticed this to be true in your area. But back in 1990, 78% of white people lived in predominantly white neighborhoods. You know, every four out of every five people were white. In the 2020 census, that went from 78% down to 44%. So now in the America we live in, the new majority of all Americans, which is about 56%, live in mixed neighborhoods where neither white people nor non-whites 
are the dominant race. So I will just say, if you have questions on how to raise strong biracial kids, women especially, let us know. And maybe we will make an episode just based on our own OG biracial advice. But as promised, can you take us through, my dear lawyer, legal friend, this loving case and why it's so important to who we are and who how we were allowed to be born? Yeah. So let's set the scene because a century after the Civil War, right? So Civil War ended in 1865. More than a dozen states still had laws on the books banning interracial marriage. So the important point to note is that while not all states outwardly banned interracial marriage, like still you think about the right to marry, right? And there was no federal right at that point that was guaranteed. So to note, there were a lot of biracial kids that came out of, let's, you know, slavery, but we're focusing here on sort of the legality of interracial marriage, right? So enter Mildred and Richard Loving, who are a Virginia couple whose June 12th, 1967 Supreme Court ruling dealt a major blow to miscegenation, which is marriage, cohabitation, or sexual intercourse between a white person and a member of another race. So there's a whole group of laws out there that were specifically dealing with this. And so according to CNN, the couple married, um, so I'm back with the Lovings, married in 1958 in Washington, where interracial marriage was legal, then moved to their home in Central Point, Virginia. Weeks later, the local sheriff came into their home in the middle of the night, which is what you always want, right? And they were charged with violating several Virginia codes, including one that made it unlawful for any white person in the state to marry any, save a white person. It was also illegal for people to leave the state for the purpose of avoiding these types of laws. And such marriages were considered absolutely void in the state of Virginia. So they got legally married in Washington, but their marriage was considered void in Virginia. Mildred was Black. It's important, there's a little asterisk here because her New York Times obituary says that she preferred to think of herself as Native American since her parents were both part Native American. Regardless, Virginia had different forms of these sort of interracial bans on the books, stretching back to the 1600s, no surprise there, and the state's 1924 Racial Integrity Act, which, wow, that title alone, defined anyone who wasn't entirely white as, quote, colored. The only exception was made for those who were 1 16th Native American, but even that had restrictions. So... Mr. and Mrs. Loving pled guilty and were sentenced to either a year in prison or a 25-year banishment from the state. They chose the latter, which personally I would have too, moved to Washington and had three children. In 1967, they were arrested while visiting Virginia. Mildred wrote to the U.S. Attorney General, who we might know because his name was Robert Kennedy, for help, and he referred her to the ACLU. So when you think about this case path to the Supreme Court, it's actually fairly interesting because the couple had pled guilty, so they didn't really have a right to an appeal. But the case found itself in the Virginia Supreme Court before landing in Washington. And, and the real question was a constitutional question, right, which is how it became a federal case. The most pressing question at stake was whether or not Virginia's laws violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And for those of you who don't have that memorized, a quick refresher, right, which is no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So 
Philip Hirschkopf, who was one of the lawyers arguing for the Lovings, went so far as to call Virginia's laws and rules slavery laws, pure and simple, that robbed, quote, the Negro race of their dignity. One of the lawyers arguing for Virginia tried to make the case that his opponent was trying to read into the Constitution and give it new meaning. And I'm just going to pause here to say where we heard that before, <laughs> or sometimes in reverse. Um, you got to love it when it's constitutional interpretation, right? So this guy said marriage was a matter for the states to decide. Also, where have we heard that one before? He also argued that intermarried families are subjected to much greater pressures and problems than those of the intramarried, comparing intermarried couples to polygamous and the incestuous. So let's just pause here for a quick second, because this was 1967, and that was the state's attorney's argument. I was just going to say, I feel like this also you can think about, you know, the right for gay couples to be married. Like it's who are you seeing as human and why are you limiting that? We are all people, correct? Like, so how are we defining like who is allowed to and not allowed to do these sorts of things? Right. Because if you think back to our SCOTUS episode that we just did, right, it's a very slippery slope when you start to define whose rights, right? Who has rights in this instance? And fortunately, the justices were having none of that argument. And so on June 12, 1967, they unanimously ruled that the purpose of miscegenation laws, again, those bans on interracial marriage and cohabitation, was rooted in racism and violated the Constitution. It took, however, until 2000 for the final state, which was Alabama, to strike down its ban on interracial marriage. So Sarah, right, as the census was allowing us to pick more than one race, Alabama was just in the process then of removing its ban on interracial marriage, right? So as for the Lovings, Richard Loving died in 1975 and Mildred passed away in 2008. And that brings me to another point, which is, you know, sort of what you started this whole section with, our parents being that group of people who got married directly after loving, right? My parents got married in 1973 and yours probably got married when- In 75. Yeah. So these were the very same people that are now in their seventies, right? And I think when we think about being Asian in this country, right? Being biracial, having our Asian immigrant parents, these were also the same people that we were so afraid for during the pandemic and all of that highly racialized talk about Asians and COVID. So do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, like I think it's something I think we need to talk about it because I think it's not in the news enough and people don't know that this is still happening. And it certainly was at the height of the pandemic with the anti-Asian hate. I absolutely was worried for my mom. She lives in the outskirts of New York, same house I was actually born and raised in. She still lives in it. And, you know, when she's going out grocery shopping, when she wanted to eventually, when people were allowed to go out and do things in New York City, when she was visiting friends, I was terrified that someone would hurt her, say something to her, like in any way harm my mom. I mean, like I said, she's got the blonde hair. And part of me literally was like, can you just wear a mask and really big sunglasses? Because then nobody can tell at first glance that you look Asian. Like that was how fearful I was. Or I was like, can you get your partner to go food shopping? Because things like this happened. A friend of ours who I grew up with, our piano teachers were the, the same. And her mom was in New York City buying her tickets at the MTA, like at the station. And a man came over 
punched her and she fell down and hit her head and had to go to the hospital and get all the CT scan and all that stuff done. Like that doesn't make the news. It's a one-off hate thing, but it was happening and it continues to happen. It's just that it's not the focus. A lot of what we talk about, people aren't talking about it, but it was to the point where, you know, like the phenomenally line of t-shirts, right? I had my phenomenally Asian t-shirt and I was out hiking. My brother was visiting and we were all hiking and there was a photo we took and, and I sent it to my mom and she was like, instantly not, Hey, that's great that your brother's there. Hey, I'm so glad you're out hiking and having a good time. It was, why are you wearing that shirt? We look Asian enough. We do not need to bring more attention to this. That is dangerous. Please never wear that shirt again. And that was my mom's fear for me. So it's there. It's definitely there. Was it the same for you? You know, I definitely had a very awkward conversation with my dad, which was super Japanese, where, you know, we didn't really say our feelings or anything like that. But I I was very afraid for him to go food shopping, for example, to go and be places, right? Because he's obviously Asian, tall, you know, he stands out in a crowd. And I did not want him to stand out at that time. I absolutely did not. And, you know, it got to the point where I had this conversation with him, I got off the phone as pretty like upset. And, you know, I had one of my boys was around and he was like, why are you upset? And I was telling him, you know, I'm just a little afraid for grandpa right now because of what's going on. And he was like, are you going to be okay? And, you know, I think it's those moments where that breaks your heart because like what I do is really worry about them. And I was, then I was worried about my father and, you know, it was, it was a lot. And it, it is these moments, right, of your family and, and multiracial families and, you know, those fears that you are compounded that you do not think about if you don't have these experiences, and especially within the Asian community, often ones that we don't talk about. So I'm so glad that we are able to talk about this here and now, right? And I wish more people were still talking about this. Speaking of talking, though, let's talk about now, right, present day. How do you see yourself, right? We talked about like all the way back, we talked about sort of our trajectories getting to here, but how do you see yourself now and how do you want to move this conversation forward? Yeah, thank you for asking that. You know, I love being able to say I am Asian. Like I was raised by a Japanese woman, an immigrant woman. And I feel finally, having gone through that journey, that I can claim my place as a woman of color. It was something that I wasn't sure about, even when we started this platform. And I really want more folks to understand that I know what I'm talking about when it comes to the Asian experience, that I have my own biracial lens and that I was raised by a Japanese woman and know the culture and know the pressures. And so I think at this point in our work, when you think about where we want to go from here, it's so clear to me that we need more Asian folks to own their own identities and historic like marginalization. And I think take the time to dig out their own internal stereotypes and expectations that they put on themselves, whether it's from the immigrant experience, whether it's from the Asian experience. And one thing I really need to say is like, stop taking those viral videos pitting Black men and Asian women against each other at face value, because the research shows that it's actually white people causing the most harm and hurt to Asian people, according to a study there, right? And what I want is for all that work to be done so that more Asian people can come together with other oppressed groups to speak up and push back against white supremacy. I think we have to be in it together. And I think that is where I want to see this go. What about you? Yeah. I mean, when I think about this month, right? AAPI Heritage Month, right? And understanding, I think when we do not understand, I know this is going to sound strange coming from me, but when we do not understand our history, we don't know where we're going. I know that's shocking that I would even say something like that. 
But I think it's in that understanding the history and the divisions, right, that have been purposely created by white supremacy to uphold white supremacy that we have to continue to fight against the divisions. And I feel like we waste so much time trying to put people into boxes, right? Trying to gatekeep who should be in our communities, trying to decide if we're Asian, how Asian are we? That's the wrong question. We are asking the wrong questions. We have to be asking, how do we all collectively do better? How do we all collectively win? It cannot be Asians at the expense of others. It cannot be Black people at the expense of others. It cannot be Hispanic people at the expense of others. I think you get the point because otherwise I'll be here for three hours with all the groups. But it's got to be all of us. And we have to continue to think about that because they feel like, especially in heritage months, it gets myopic, right? And, And we focus on certain groups to the exclusion of others. And it cannot be that way, because I think that is our natural tendencies. Um, And we just spend all this time talking about it. And I think the biggest takeaway that we had, well, at least I had while prepping for this episode is that these types of conversations, those are never had except between two biracial people, right? Because the biracial experience is a unique experience. And I think that to have these conversations, you have to have a certain level of trust and understanding, right, of what these other people have gone through. But, and I'm specifically talking about the biracial experience here, if it stays in this quiet place, right, the stuff that's never talked about, right, the excluded exclusion from truly Asian events, right, or groups, if we continue to be excluded from that AAPI identity as a whole, we're ignoring so many of us, as you pointed out with the census data. Totally. I think that's why this episode is also a sneak preview of some of the themes that we're going to be discussing way more in depth in the fall, right? Being biracial in this country, white adjacency and how it shows up even with two fully monoracial people. We'll dig into the model minority myth. Who do we think of when we say Asian? Sit with that one for a little bit. And why biracial and multiracial people are key to the collective liberation on some level. So if you like this episode, you will love the fall. So please share with your friends, subscribe for more, follow us on social and bring us in to speak to your organizations if this is a different discussion than the ones that you're used to, because all of us or none of us, we had to include that for those who do not fit neatly into a racial or ethnic box as well. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>